During my junior year, which was my worst year academically, there was one marking period that I failed literally, I think, five classes. But there was background noise um, in my personal life. My parents were going through a really kind of nasty separation. There was um, a custody battle, you know, with my siblings and, you know, my parents. So for me, I think, as the oldest sibling, there was a lot of pressure. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. Linked insomnia keeps us evolving. We growing in the knowing, the wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. Today's guest is Rakim Sabri. But before I introduce him, I want to personally thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, Hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends. Invite them to subscribe and connect with us on social media. So, can you give a brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Well, thank you for having me here. My name is Rakim Sabri. I'm an author and columnist, uh, speaker, and financial coach. I focus on uh, the kind of intersection between financial trauma and financial empowerment. Um, I have been in the finance space for about a decade now and uh, just recently celebrated a year full-time entrepreneurship. Congrats, man. A lot of people talk about it. They say they're about it, but you actually live it. So how has it been? Uh, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. I don't want to glamorize the, uh, the experience. There's been ups and downs, certainly. I had a plan when I exited corporate America. But um, it's kind of like that Mike Tyson statement, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I got punched in the face a few times. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? That's just a part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I Mine is three and a half years, man. And I've been punched in the face, kicked in the leg, stabbed <laughs> in the back, right? It's just a part of entrepreneurship. So what is it that you kind of help people do? So you mentioned like the financial trauma. And that's a very important thing. So can you go a little more detail into yeah. that? Yeah. So um, I've when I started in, I guess, financial education, right, my passion came from not knowing, right? So from a place of ignorance to this massive discovery that, you know, things could work out a very different way. At No Degree, we share stories of people who are successful without a college degree. But No Degree doesn't mean no education or no skills. And that's why I want to tell you about Business XP, the sponsor of today's podcast. Business XP is a new alternative to business school. If you want to gain the skills and confidence to start a career in business or start your own business, you should take a serious look at Business XP. Here's what's really unique about it. Business XP uses the world's most advanced business games and simulations to help you learn about business in the fastest and most effective way possible. Imagine playing realistic games that can help you be successful in business and life. Business XP training is completely online and you can do it at your own pace with live coaching when you need it. In a matter of weeks, you can be better prepared to win your first job or level up your career or be ready to start your own business. You can find out more and check out the special no degree scholarship offer at business-xp.com forward slash no degree. That's business-xp.com forward slash no degree. The link is also in the show notes. In New York, we had Section 8, we had food stamps to tell the story all the time. And um, 
I had aspired to be an adult who had Section 8 in food stamps. And it's not because that was any instruction that was given to me, but it was just what I saw, what I observed. And so I'm like, okay, that must be the way. Fast forward, moving to Connecticut and starting to work in banking, I was surrounded by people who um, had their financial house in order, if you will, and were relatively close in age to me. So they owned property. They were investing. They had great credit. And I'm like, hey, like I want to do those things too. And so that kind of ignited a fire in me to learn. And then as I would learn, I would share. The pivot into, or I'll, I'll call it an evolution rather, into financial trauma is really understanding two things. This market of financial educators is saturated with people who are talking about the same things over and over again, right? The basics of financial literacy. But there are not a lot of people talking about the behavioral side of things. And how do you address the individuals who know what they should be doing, right? They have the literacy, but they're not executing on it. And so financial trauma really is kind of like the roadblock that I've identified as being um, a barrier between financial literacy and feeling empowered financially, right? If you have thoughts or feelings, experiences or beliefs that kind of thrive in an environment of scarcity or lack or trauma, then that's going to be a roadblock or barrier to, you know, the way that you feel about money, the way that you interact with money, the way that you believe about money and what you believe is possible for you. So that's why my area um, of focus is the financial trauma piece. I help people identify what those traumas are, acknowledge them, move through those traumas so that they can focus on whatever it is that makes them feel financially empowered. No, that's amazing because it's an easy equation, right? Earn and spend less than you earn. People simplify it and they're like, oh, why don't you save? Why don't you do this? But there's so many things and it gets really complex. And it's the emotional side that's a lot harder. Same thing with eating, right? Eat healthy, exercise, right? But if it was that easy to do, everybody would be fit, right? But there's so much more to it. So let's kind of go back. How was high school like for you? High school was good. I um, I went to Mount Vernon High School in Mount Vernon, New York. That's a rough area. It is a rough area. <laughs> yeah, look, I know someone from Mount Vernon, and he mentioned it was definitely rough. It's a small. It's a small. I don't even know if if, if it would be considered a city. Uh, maybe a town. It's about four square miles. Very diverse population there, and um, I spent the end of elementary school, all of middle school, and all of high school in Mount Vernon. I had always kind of excelled academically, so I didn't get caught up in any of like the foolery. But I think there are a lot of instances where people will take the similar path and still get caught up. Um, so I definitely had to kind of be aware of my surroundings, be aware of my uh, who I associated with, who I didn't associate with, et cetera. But high school was easy uh, looking back. And I mean, I just turned 32. So we're coming up on 15 years that I've been out of high school. I thought it was hard at the time. But, you know, looking back, it's like, man, I wish I could do that again. I would say the quality of education that I received was not terrible. Um, I think there's a negative stigma around the quality of the teachers there. Some of the teachers actually do care and they're really good at the work that they do. I just was too smart for my own good. (laughs) (laughs) So um, because I learned that quickly, and this helps me as an entrepreneur, ironically, later in life, I was able to kind of finesse certain scenarios and thinking outside of the box and really continuing to at least excel or pace out at a level that I felt comfortable with. 
Uh, I will say that towards the end of my high school experience, I kind of slacked off. And so that had a negative impact on um, ultimately the way that colleges viewed me for acceptance. But it was kind of like a weird combination because I scored really high on my SAT. But then, like, I have all these failures on my transcript, right? I'm sure, you know, we'll continue to kind of unfold, like, that experience. But for the most part, high school was a really good experience for me. Okay, no, that's that's cool. And what did you want to be when you grew up at that time? I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Yeah, I wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to, you know, have the doctor in front of my name and do the counseling and all that stuff. (laughs) Now, you mentioned you didn't get caught up in things. What kind of things did you see other people get caught up in? Because it's a really small town, there's definitely a lot of like clicking, right? Depending on where you grew up or where you reside, some minor gang activity and just, you know, kids being kids, right? Acting foolish. So, you know, kind of on the more serious side of things, while I was in high school, every year, I think for the four years I was there, there was a new principal. Every year for the four years that I was there, there was like an annual riot that took place. Oh, right. Um, Huge fights on campus, off campus related to instances that occurred within the school. Just that kind of stuff. So I avoided those types of things. Um, I was considered one of the smart kids, but I also um, participated in some of their athletic programs. So I kind of had like the best of both worlds, right? Where I got to hang out with like all the, you know, what, what they would call nerds, but also got to hang out with kind of the athletes and have the respect of other athletes that, um, you know, whether they were in, you know, the sport that I participated in or not, um, just kind of acknowledge, oh, you know, he's an athlete. So I was, I won't say that I was popular, but I was certainly known. Yeah. What sports? So I did wrestling. Um, from, I, yeah, too. I did wrestling in high school. Yeah. Um, and I did cheerleading for a bit, actually. That's cool. That's cool. No, so I'm an assistant wrestling coach. So, And the coach from my gym who grew up in Mount Vernon. And my wrestling coach at the gym I go to. Uh, so yeah, no, wrestling, it teaches you a lot. And coaches always keep you straight. Because if you do something that, bad, your coach is going to come after you. That is definitely a fact. <laughs> so... Now you got past high school. What came next? I did go to college right out of high school. Um, I went to St. Peter's College at the time. It's now St. Peter's University. You know, kind of before I get into the whole college experience. So I didn't know what I didn't know. Where there were students who started applying to colleges probably in their junior year, maybe as early as their um, sophomore year. I waited to the very last minute um, and probably started applying to colleges in my senior year. During my junior year, which was my worst year academically, there was one marking period that I failed literally, I think, five classes. And my wrestling coach, and I wasn't wrestling at the time, but my wrestling coach um, at the time had said to me, you had to try to fill those classes. There's no way that you could have filled five classes if you were showing up and doing what you were supposed to do. But there was background noise um, in my personal life. My parents were going through a really kind of nasty separation. There was um, a custody battle, you know, with my siblings and, you know, my parents. So for me, I think as the oldest sibling, there was a lot of pressure. And with that, I was looking for ways to kind of decompress And some of those ways involved just dissociating when I was in school, right? Like I would go to class with a notebook and a book bag and write 
my name, not even my full name, like my first name on the top of the page. And then the next thing I know, class was over. And I would do this over and over and over every day for the entire marking period. So I wasn't doing any homework. I wasn't doing any work in the class. And of course, those failures had a negative impact on my GPA. And of course, you know, when a college had looked at that, they're like, what is going on here? I actually got accepted into three colleges. I got accepted into SUNY Oswego, uh, which was upstate New York, and I did not want to go upstate. I got accepted yeah. into St. John's, uh, which is a relatively good school, private school, pretty pricey. And then I got accepted into St. Peter's. St. Peter's and St. John's were really the two that I was looking at attending. St. Peter's gave me more money and cost a little bit less. Yeah. So that's why I made that decision. It was right across the bridge in Jersey City. And so um, I went out and visited the school, did not know how I was going to pay for the remainder. And um, I was a part of this program for low-income families that help with workforce development. And so the counselor, whoever I was paired with, was like, oh, just take out student loans. Everybody takes out student loans. And so that's what I did. I took out some student loans. And um, I did one full year on campus at St. Peter's. And, you know, it was a wonderful experience, but it was a very expensive one. After that, I transferred out into uh, some community colleges and I did some traveling. Uh, so I moved from New York to Texas. I was in Texas for eight months and then uh, moved back up north to Connecticut. Before I started going back to school, I started working and that starts my banking career. Ah, so what, what kind of job did you get in banking? I started as a part-time teller. So for the first six years in banking, I was on the branch side. So I did really everything in the branch. I did tellering. I did selling. I did a hybridized version of the role. I was a teller supervisor. I was assistant manager. I was a branch manager. So um, once I got tired of being customer facing, the last four years of my banking career, I did some um, kind of behind the scene ops work. So operations support around social media, email chat. My title was program manager, and um, I really enjoyed that work. That was the last position that I held before I left. How'd you sort of move up in it? And like, how'd you sort of make your mark? That's a good question. Networking uh, was a big part of it, for sure. I'm an introvert, um, and I tell people this all the time, but I had to learn very quickly how to exhibit extrovert tendencies. So part of the networking piece was really how I saved my um, introvert nature, right? If you go into meetings and, you know, networking events or whatever, I would be the first person to speak, the first person to introduce myself so that nobody called on me. Ah, I like the strategy. That was the trick, right? I I just like, okay, if I go in and I'm like the first person to talk, then they're not going to want to hear from me anymore. But what happened was as I flexed that muscle of being comfortable being uncomfortable, I started to talk more. And it got to a point where they're like, okay, Rakim, like give somebody else a chance. (laughs) (laughs) But in being able to kind of beat the herd, so to speak, um, I was able to showcase not only my level of engagement and the competence that I had in the roles, but also articulate my willingness and desire to move up. And so that was a big part of it, being in the right place at the right time, being connected to the right people, and then sharing like, hey, this is something that I want. I'm looking for career advancement. Give me an opportunity. By the time I was ready to apply for a new role, a promotion, 
um, I was probably one of the people that they were already thinking of promoting. Ah, uh, yeah, it helps when they already have you in mind. They're like, oh, okay, that's For Rock sure. Kim. I-, I love to kind of work For with sure. him. Now, a lot of people are tellers, right? And sometimes they get stuck in that position. What are the mistakes that they're kind of making? That's a really good question. I think at that level, it is... First of all, it depends on what kind of teller you are. Um, and the banking industry has changed quite a lot since I started there. Um, at the time, there was a lot of part-time and then there was some full-time. What I noticed as time kind of moved on was that the full-time teller positions were phased out and turned into more hybridized roles. And so what you'll see in most banking models today, I guess they would use like a relationship manager type of title where they're able to do tellering transactions, but they're more focused on sales. Uh, if you were to ask me that question back then, I'm, think, I'm thinking my answer would probably change from, well, they need to be more engaged and they need to take more initiatives, right? Yeah. The corporate Kool-Aid. Um, but I think uh, these days, the true answer is, do they have the ability to sell? Right? Do they feel comfortable offering products and services? Are they able to overcome objection? Essentially, like you can't be an introvert exhibiting introvert tendencies in that type of role yeah. because a lot of your success in that role is based off of how you're producing. So now a lot of times people walk into the bank and they think you have the people, the tellers, you have the relationship managers. What are some other things and other roles that support the bank that a traditional person would not think of? Oh, so the bank is like an entire ecosystem, right? And so to your point, most people, when they think of banking employees, they think of only the branch side. And this is an interesting question because as we modernize and digitize, a lot of processes that were once performed by human beings are now being performed by technology of some sort, right? So back in the day, there was a proofing department and they would go through all of the deposit slips and the cash-ins and the cash-outs and make sure that everything kind of balanced. Now it's all electronic. So the computer does all of that. But uh, just kind of give an idea of some more of the behind the scenes things. There's customer service people behind the scenes. So, you know, when you call and say, hey, I lost my debit card or, hey, I need a new credit card. Or, hey, you know, there's an issue in my account. There's a lot of people who sit and do that type of work. Um, so call centers are a big thing. There's a whole marketing side, right? So who's responsible for the physical marketing materials that the branches are hanging up around their location? Who's responsible for the emails that are going out that you're getting? Hey, your account is overdrawn. Or, hey, we have this new promotion. Or something that you're receiving in the mail. It says, hey, open up a new account and we'll give you $100. There's a branding department, there's communications, there's public relations, there's operations, there's uh, specific departments around lending, home lending, unsecured lending, business lending, yeah, uh, business acquisition, business sales. So, um, and then depending on the bank size, um, you might have commercial banking, you might have treasury. So there is, like I said, a whole world within the banking space, um, some roles that don't even touch like traditional finances, right? It's just kind of like, okay, we're just here to make your mobile app look pretty, or we're just here to make the process more seamless for online banking. Even people who are in tech working, so I know a lot of banks are using uh, software like Salesforce. So if you have a Salesforce background, you know, solutions architect, or Salesforce administrator, or um, any of those types of things, they have a place in the banking world as well. 
that's cool. And it's good to know that just because you start as a teller does not mean that's all you'll do. It's about building the relationships and sort of moving up. So you started as a teller, right? What was like that first big moment? Like, hey, I'm at the next level now. It was when I had to select my benefits package, probably. Okay. Yeah. So prior to working in banking, my experience was mostly on the retail side. Um, so like retail stores and, and grocery, actually. Yeah. So um, I worked in two different supermarkets as a cashier. And it was just kind of like, Ugh, you know, whatever, right? You're scanning yeah. groceries. Um, and so I thought tellering was kind of like a logical progression from being a cashier because you're still cash handling. Um, but you just have to be a little bit more focused on the types of transactions that you're doing. And of course, like I said, the sales piece. But um, once I kind of got accepted and had to look at the benefits package, I'm like, oh, like I have dental insurance. I have medical insurance. I have, what's a 401k? Direct deposit. Like all of those things were like, I have a big boy job now. Once I moved from what was called an individual contributor role, which is basically like you're responsible for you and the work that you do into a leadership role. I think that was the next level of arriving for me. It's like, okay, now I manage people. Like now I tell people what to do. Now um, I'm responsible for their results. So I get to coach and give them feedback and put them on performance plans and celebrate their successes. And so I, I dedicated a lot of my time to learning how to be a good coach and leader. Um, and with that, as I got into leadership a little bit more, I became a salaried employee. And then it was like, that was the moment where it's like, all right, I've arrived. Like I can show up when I want, I can leave when I want. At least that's what you think in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you've obviously done a lot of things, right? What were some of the mistakes you made along the way? Within the banking uh, career? No, just in general. Just in general. Um, that's a really good question. I don't know that I would necessarily consider anything that I've done as a mistake because I was pretty calculated up to and even included leaving my job. Yeah, career-wise, I don't think that I could have made any better choices. Um, I'm sure that there were people that would disagree with me, particularly in how I left my last job. I definitely burned some bridges there. But I did my best to, first of all, establish a really strong professional brand and personal brand while I was working there that uh, my name would enter rooms way before I did. And um, definitely from a positive perspective, I went out of my way to build good relationships, strong relationships, um, even if outside of the working environment, it wasn't a thing. It was definitely like, okay, Rakim's here. Rakim's going to work. You know, I can depend on Rakim. I raised my hand a lot of times to do things that weren't within the realm of my responsibility. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I made any mistakes in my career except for probably not ending not. it. <laughs> yeah, hey, I, that's not a mistake, man. You're, you're on to the next stage. Now, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment so far? Mm. Leaving my job. When did you get that entrepreneur itch? I think I've always had this entrepreneur uh, desire. It was just a matter of figuring out how I was going to kind of step into that. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to have my own business. And I didn't have very many models of what 
that could look like successfully for me outside of maybe buying a brick and mortar, right? And so once I started to realize like the rise of the influencer and the rise of, you know, coaches and just social media and digital media as being a means of generating income and and creating a business, I was like, oh, I can do that. And so uh, I started to realize relative success maybe two years before I left my job. I published my first book in 2018. I published another one in 2019. Did a TEDx talk in 2019. And then in 2020, I started writing for publications. And of course, during 2020, we experienced the beginning of the worst of the pandemic. And so we were all sent home to work from home, which gave me a lot more time to focus on some of those things. And um, as I became Googleable, right? If you type my name in the Google and stuff pops up, as I became more Googleable, I was like, this is not stuff that I can hide, right? This is stuff that people can find about me if they type my name and search me. And this is not stuff that I should hide. And so um, really there came a clash between uh, my work self and my personal self that said, you got to make a choice, right? Um, My employer, um, specifically the person that managed me, wasn't very supportive of the fact that I was doing all of these things outside of the job. And if we had conversations that kind of went more along the lines of, hey, you're getting your work done. I'm supportive of what you have going on as long as you can continue to maintain the level of performance that um, I'm expecting of you. Then I think that I probably would have stayed because I was like, all right, cool. Like, who doesn't want the security of a paycheck? But when I felt like I had to kind of choose between what was my passion and what I was really good at and the security of the paycheck, I just seen too many examples of people who bet on themselves and being successful that I was just like, you know what? Like, if not now, then when? Let me make this jump. How do you plan for it? Because you're very calculated in how you do things. You don't just leave and you're like, all right, I got to pay rent in two weeks. You save, you you make some moves. So how was that planning like when you're like, all right, I'm going to leave to do it full time. What steps did you take to make sure that it happened and that you didn't just come back looking for the job in like, you know, three to six months. Yeah. Uh, It was actually a combination of, I won't call it recklessness, passion, right? We'll call it passion. And so in February of 21, I just remember being very frustrated. I had just found out, as did many people who worked for the company, that there were mass layoffs happening. Like over 200 people were laid off kind of without really knowing about it. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the role that I held. They were taking away responsibilities. They were adding on responsibilities that had nothing to do with my title or my role and the way that it was presented to me. And I was just kind of expected to just take whatever it was that I was given. And I started to see other people, I want to say definitely in my mind, two other people that I was connected to via social media left their job. And I'm like, man, I wish that I could do that. And then that I wish that I can do that turned into a how can I do that turned into 
several conversations with people in my inner circle around planning to do that and how frustrated I was in the job to looking at, well, what do you have? And it was a question somebody close to me asked me. Well, let's take inventory of what do you have? What assets do you have? How long can you survive based off of what you have? And then what is your plan to make money? It was a very rapidly put together plan that said, okay, I have you know access to this much in assets that I can either sell off or borrow against or, or what have you. I can survive this number of months. My plan on month whatever is to do this thing. I'm good. Let's go. And as I was kind of, because I'm somebody who has, um, and I share this pretty regularly, has always done the right thing, right? The thing that I've gone, you know, I never really rock the boat, never really go against the grain. I was an honor student until I got to high school. Um, and, you know, I shared with you the experience that kind of made me deviate. And then same thing in, in my corporate career, right? I just, I was always getting promoted. I was always getting a raise. I was always getting a bonus. Like, I was just like the golden child. And this was very much not typical of the golden child. The way that I had planned on leaving was effective immediately. The way that I actually did leave was effective immediately. I did not give a two weeks notice. Um, there was no like trying to talk me out of it. None of that. So it was like full on rebel mode. I'm done. You guys have pissed me off. And I have this in the background to fall back on. I just, I think I overestimated what I had in the background to fall back on and how fast things would pick up in what I felt was success financially. So on social media and, you know, on paper and in the digital world, it's like, oh, Rakim's still cranking out stuff. Like he's doing good. But financially it was tough. And then it just got to a point where opportunity and preparedness and, you know, all of the work that I had been doing compounded and met. And I was um, actually approached multiple times by multiple different entities like, hey, we want you to do this. Hey, we want you to do this. Hey, we want you to do this. And of course, paid. So I was like, bet, like, okay, my salvation. But um, in all transparency, I think it was the end of January where I was like looking for another job. <laughs> I was like, I need to, I need to figure out even if it's just on a part-time basis, how I'm going to make money because I'm behind on things, I'm missing payments on things, it wasn't coming in fast enough. And then in uh, February, I got kind of like my breath of fresh air, and then it's been like that ever since. Man, that that's good to hear, man, because I, I know that, man. I know it's like the months you make a lot of money, you stash them away, and then it's like things are coming in, but it's never fast enough. And it's like you want to focus on making money, but it's just, Balancing growing the brand, growing your presence, and thinking about short-term and long-term. So I completely feel you. Now, what would you say was the hardest period of your life? Oof. The hardest period of my life. I would say probably, I don't know the years specifically, but leading into 2018, um, maybe after 2016, I had started to experience depression. Anxiety and depression at the same time. But, you know, that period definitely marked heavier by depression. And it was hard because externally, I had everything going for myself, right? I, I remember telling somebody that I think I'm depressed. And they said, what do you have to be depressed about? 
2016, I bought a house. I bought a new car. Um, I had probably just got a promotion. You know, I was making good money. And um, I was in school. So I was either finishing up my associate's degree or I just finished it. But I know I bought my house in 2016. So it was like full on 2017 was probably, yeah, probably the roughest year. And I didn't understand what was happening to me. I didn't understand what was happening inside of my head. Um, I've always been somebody who's been like grounded and mentally in control and like you said, tactical. And there were just things that didn't make sense rationally in my mind. Uh, Experiences, feelings, emotions. I was so functionally depressed that I would get up, go to work, smile on people's faces, be personable, whatever, and then come home and then just be like a deflated ball, right? Like just, I have nothing else. And um, the reason why I say that it was the toughest time of my life is because it was also the scariest time of my life. I just, I couldn't recognize myself. In hindsight, um, and I know this is going to sound absolutely crazy, I'm grateful for that experience because it taught me about boundaries and how to establish them within myself, but also for other people. It taught me how to like identify and assess what is triggering me to deviate off the path of what positive mental health looks like. Introduced me to mental health and kind of eliminating the stigma of, you know, this can happen to anybody at any time. And so you have to be, you know, cognizant of that and be more kind to people. Not that I wasn't a kind person, but like really empathetic to to other people who are experiencing something similar. You know, in hindsight now, after, you know, a year out of corporate, learning how corporate America teaches you to just deal with it. You know, you just got to keep showing up and being the person that you are um, in that space. And so I can imagine that there are hundreds of people, maybe more, definitely more, who are operating in, like, in that experience, right, of a functionally depressed or anxious person because they don't have the option not to. You know, like I said, it's a a tough place to be in. So grateful for the experience, but not something that I would ever want to go through again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, those things make you stronger. They they just really change your life perspective. Now, was there ever a time the lack of a college degree held you back? I'm going to say yes. I think that I could have moved on a lot faster and a lot further had I a bachelor's degree at minimum, definitely a master's degree. And the reason why I say that is because I have a really close friend who started in banking with me like at literally the same time, a week after I did. And he was in school getting his bachelor's degree. Fast forward, you know, however many years it's been, he's held CEO positions, right? He's um, worked at startups as, you know, with the founders. He's amazing individual, very ambitious, very outgoing. But I think that he was able to move in the way that he was able to move because he had that degree. Whereas there were positions that I had applied for within the banking world and outside of the banking world that um, they had that requirement, bachelor's degree required, And for a time before I left banking, I thought, what else can I do, right? All of my experiences here, 
Um, I don't have a degree. Nobody else is going to pay me what I'm getting paid and nobody else is going to take me seriously. So um, when you ask that question, I had a double mind about it because I think some of it definitely was external, but maybe a big portion of it was internal too, based off of the way that society programs us to kind of value that piece of paper. So have you ever felt insecure about not having the degree? 100%. 100%. Um, I would go to great lengths to hide the fact that I didn't have a degree. Yeah. If it didn't come up, great. If it did come up, then it was like, well, how can I answer this question in a way that demonstrates that I attended college, that I'm college educated, but I just didn't finish the degree? And if there was ever an option present where I could not have my degree or my education status visible? then I would just not have it visible. Even to this day, I think, you know, having an associate's degree is certainly an accomplishment that I should celebrate. But it is, there's still kind of like this biasy kind of shame that says, oh, like well, you know, I just got an associate's degree. I don't have a bachelor's degree. You know, as an entrepreneur, it doesn't impact me because, right, I'm the boss. But, you know, when I think about entrepreneurship and when I think about the value of having a degree, whether or not I would want to go back and get one, um, my attitude today is if I decided to go back and get a degree, it would be more for me than it would be for me to audition for somebody to pay me, right? Um, I've established enough credibility to say, hey, look, like you're with it or you're not. <laughs> yeah, no. And look, you know what? If you're going to do it for yourself, that's a very valid reason. I see so many people do it for others. And it just, when you do things for others, it's just like, okay, now what? Mm-hmm. Life goes on. You still got rent to pay. You still got this. And it's like that, that feeling just goes away. And trust me, as someone with a master's degree, trust me, it's overrated. So now, what are sort of the salaries like in the banking world for different positions? Like, what are the ranges? Um... So I'm definitely out of touch now with what maybe the yeah. lower levels of um, non-managerial bankers are making. Um, yeah, but I would imagine somewhere in the range of maybe thirteen to sixteen dollars an hour um, as just entry level coming in as a teller, maybe a customer service rep. But uh, definitely management at a management level, you're gonna see probably high 50s to maybe low 80s on a kind of an average basis, which I think is a nice spread um, based off of your experience, based off of, you know, the kind of manager that you are, based off of how many people you're managing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's probably not including bonuses and any kind of other incentives. At a level above that, So you're a director, so you're managing other managers uh, or market leader or outside of just kind of like the traditional consumer banking world, significantly higher. Um, Definitely six-figure plus. I mean, I I know of executives in banking making $200,000, plus salaries. So there's definitely a range. It just kind of depends on what discipline you get into. Um, is your role commission-based, right? So there's a lot of people who, financial advisors, mortgage lenders, business bankers, um, those guys are working off of commission a lot of times. And so their commission 
in in some regards is uncapped um and others is capped but it's like really hard to reach what that cap looks like so yeah. um depending on like what the market looks like and what products are being sold there's definitely some potential to make good money there so now what are your future goals uh so you know i just uh, accomplished a micro goal with the with the one year of independence and so yeah. I think I have to go back to the drawing board and figure out, well, what is my next micro goal? But certainly long-term to maintain this independence. Um, and and for me, you know, as much as it's about the money, it's not. Um, it's more about the freedom. Um, and the time freedom really is kind of do what I want to do. Um, I'm a writer, like, by trade. Like, that's just kind of what yeah. I do. But some days I enjoy it and some days I don't. But I definitely see myself writing a couple of more books. Um, I actually started a publication on Medium this weekend. Yeah, so I am going to be promoting the hell out of that, trying to get writers, um, maybe editors, to see where that goes and grow it. And uh, I have a coaching business, so I do financial coaching and work with people on their mindsets related to money. So, I mean, as I kind of dip my toe and foot and leg and eventually my whole body into like the media side of things, um, at least from the perspective of writing, I want to kind of keep an even gas, we'll call it cruise control on the coaching side because I'm just very passionate about that work. But I just see a lot more acceleration happening from the writing, media, et cetera, side of things. Nah. I mean, keep it up, man. You're doing a lot of good things. So as we start to wrap up, how would people support you? How would people find you? So people can find me at my name on all social media. So it's Rakim Sabri, R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E. I'm active mostly on Twitter and Instagram, um, but also LinkedIn and Facebook, TikTok. And then through there, I kind of promote on a regular basis just the different work that I'm doing, whether it be through the publication, which is at medium.com slash I fired my boss. Um, (laughs) and, um, you know, like I said, I'm probably, I'm working on a book right now, so I'm probably going to keep cranking out content related to that. The book is also called I Fired My Boss. There's going to be a lot of I Fired My Boss stuff flooding the airwaves soon. So when you hear that term or that phrase, you're going to think of Rakim Sabri. But for now, I can be found at Rakim Sabri everywhere. All right. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your life story, looking forward to seeing what you do. And you're going to hit the two, three, four, five, ten years. So I look forward to those. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully this information was valuable and you learned a lot. Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at Facebook.com slash No Degree INC. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, No Degree, No Problem. NoDegree.com.